What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by Piotr Kaizen. He is the host of the Global Gambit Podcast, an absolute great podcast based on everything to do with geopolitics and what is going on in the world right now. So I mixed it up a little bit and brought him on because he's popped into the spaces and he has great, great, great insight on what all is going on geopolitically. We have the Russia-Ukraine situation, potential of China invading Taiwan, and you know overall just how that can affect markets. And it makes for a very, very interesting conversation, a little bit different, but slightly related as the overall global economy and macro is all connected. But first, ladies and gents, please, please, please remember that this is not financial advice. Everything that is said in this podcast is not financial advice and should not be taken as such. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. But first, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Inverse. Inverse is a social and collaborative investment research platform. Many new companies like Robinhood have increased the access to financial markets. Well, Inverse is increasing the access to high-quality investment research and discussion. The entire platform is built around top-notch data and tools to help you analyze over 10,000 stocks and ETFs seamlessly. It's all embedded into the platform. And in the coming weeks, you'll be able to link your brokerage account, share your portfolio to maximize that credibility when you're writing about those various stocks and ETFs and presenting your theses, both bullish and bearish. And also, it'll allow you access to clean your portfolio with their various analytics tools. I myself have been using Inverse for quite some time now, and I absolutely love it. So come join me and follow me on Inverse at Green Candle IT and join the Green Candle Investments group there. And we can interact, post your ideas and podcasts and what have you there. And we can all have a nice discussion around the financial markets. Now, let's get into the episode. All right, I am back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, and I got a very special guest, Peter, or is it, how do you, Piotr, or I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I probably should have asked you pre-show, but he's a very special guest. He's the uh, host of the Global Gambit Podcast, and he's been in and around the Tuesday night spaces. So, uh, Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, so you got you to gotta clear it up for me. How do I pronounce your name correctly so I don't mess it up throughout the interview? Uh, that's fine. We're, we're probably going to go into some of the reasons behind that. It's uh, Piotr. So it's uh, okay. uh, the thing I say to friends is sort of think of a peeing otter. So Piotr, um, <laughs> pee hyphen also. I know it's a bit of a weird sound, but it seems to uh, resonate and remember in the minds of people. So... Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thanks for being a good sport about it. And let, now let's get it get it rolling. Let's get into your background. So you have, uh, you know, you speak very eloquently when you come on the spaces about, you know, what's going on about the you know whole geopolitical uh, climate and everything like that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, kind of how you got here today? 
Yeah, it's um, I I, well, it's, I appreciate that compliment already. You haven't heard me after a whiskey or two, but um, I think that you know, I um, my personal background I think plays a lot into my interests in um geopolitics more broadly um i was born because of the soviet union basically collapsing which enabled my father to come and be with my mum uh i don't want to bore your listeners to the whole story of how my parents met um but it is sort of very romantic and black and white film-esque um and sort of rather circumstantial so um the uh the broader sort of geopolitical events of that my parents meeting in Russia in the 1980s um, and then the eventual collapse of the uh, Soviet Union in 1990, uh, sort of allowed my father to move uh, and he came with nothing. And um, so eventually my parents sort of settled down together in a part of southern England. And um, my mother, this is always something I found quite amusing. My mother was an artist in London, single mum, and she bought my father's first car for him, which was a Lada, 1950-something Lada. And, and my father's reaction is sort of like, well, I left Russia to get away from that, not to sort of have it back. Um, but, um, yeah, I was born in 93, and we grew up in southern England. It was pretty, um, I don't know, I would say stereotypical, but it isn't. My father was trying to make his way in the world in what was a very new world of former Soviet states um, and, you know, be, um, I wouldn't say opportunistic because it makes it sound negative, but yeah, seek his opportunity to try and make his own uh, successes. And and uh, by the end of the 80, uh, 90s, he'd um, uh, landed a senior position in a company called Beamer Gold. Uh, and uh, by the turn of the millennia, he was, uh, he'd been pushed by people like a chap called Frank Juster and, uh, others to to start his own companies so he he's been very heavily uh active in the natural commodity space uh which is sort of why i think i have an appreciation for uh that area business more broadly it's not necessarily what i've been drawn to but it's always something in the back of my mind and then geopolitics sort of just i don't know i became really fascinated in the relationship of russia to the west and um how the whole world works sort of thing we traveled a lot when i was a kid the first place i ever went to was kazakhstan at six months old typical family holiday um and um i don't know it just sort of stuck so i've spent my shall we say later years studying international relations geopolitics particularly great power politics i'm very interested in how in india uh, uh, china united states russia the eu now i guess sort of play together globalization um, and all how this impacts sort of the economics of the countries, the uh, the economy of the world. Um, and yeah, it's sort of stuck. Now I'm here in DC the past four years working in a few different roles currently at the World Bank. So that's a whirlwind of my sort of background. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's great. And I, th- I think everybody kind of brings a, you know, every guest that I have brings a unique background that kind of leads them almost to their expertise um but you know yours is is definitely one of the more unique ones to say the very least and so you know on on that note like you know with everything kind of going on now um you know do you think that your background has kind of i guess played a role in in how you you know everybody of course has their biases and, and things like that but um you know, do you think like it's kind of helped you uh, essentially become like, you know, where you're at today and, you know, in D.C. working for the World Bank? Do you think, you know, your upbringing uh, has brought you there or do you think, you know, maybe uh, at a certain point you had kind of an inclination for, you know, working for a bank or something along those lines? 
Um, I work for the World Bank because it more focuses on development and poverty, not so much because it's finance orientated. I, I've always appreciated and found the importance of finance, but um, I did it because it's sort of a mixture of you're doing, you're working in financial areas, but it's towards a good goal, like sustainable development or something, which for me, uh, I've traveled around a lot of the global South and it's just uh, something I've become really passionate about and, and appreciate. Uh, it's sort of particularly Africa. I've traveled around about 15 countries there. And, and I just, I, I want to sort of ensure that everybody has an opportunity to feel the potential. And I do think that there's been a degree of, um, you know, colonialism is still something that a lot of people are increasingly talking about. And uh, my background personally, I mean, I don't know if you or your listeners have ever had one of those moments where it doesn't feel particularly consequential. But I just remember I was like 10 standing in my living room. My father had just got back from a trip and we were beginning to talk about maybe I was 13, a bit older. But I would talk about like sort of advanced education Um and my father being sort of, he's got a PhD in nuclear physics and thermonuclear dynamics specialization or something. He's a clever dude. Um, and my mother's an artist. So they're the opposite ends of the educational spectrum. But I um, I was just very interested in sort of geography and, and, and where we are and how it works. And he was like, well, maybe you should think about geopolitics. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that word. And it just sort of got stuck in my head. And then a few years later, we were looking at like, I don't know, it's 2008, nine. I was beginning to look at colleges or universities. And um, I kept being drawn back to this thing called international relations. And my father was like, but what about economics or, you know, uh, corporate finance or, you know, business, something related more business. And I was like, yeah, it's interesting, but I quite like this international relations thing. Uh, so over time, I've tried to sort of refine it because IR is very theoretical, quite conceptual, and you need to put it into applied uh, circumstances. So uh, that's why I did my master's at SICE uh, or Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies, because uh, their curriculum at the time, I think they changed it now, is uh, you have to do economics. And economics is a core component of any foreign policy, including, uh, you know, things as as, as arbitrary as, as macroeconomic trends. So um, you need to have a good understanding. I mean, you have to be some quantitative not with econometrics capabilities but I, I think it's a fundamental aspect and we're seeing you know a shift in the in the in the international system which i think we'll come to later but one of those is a increasing rejection of the neoliberalism economics order that has pre predicated or dominated the international system since the 1980s particularly uh reaganomics thatcherism all this sort of stuff so um over time i've tried to diversify and look at things like behavioral economics development economics looking further forward as well because it's not just a case of doing um things that are needed now but what is going to be needed and the fight the thing i find rather ironic or weird is that I seem to be ahead of the curve sometimes. I've applied to positions in the past where, you know, it's to do with communications or engagement with stakeholders. And I have a background in international relations, which diplomacy, you'd think, is, an, is a natural element to that. And I've had rejections with people going, oh, sorry, you don't have a you know degree in communications. It, it, people have... I think it's this lack of intersectionality, this lack of versatility and crossover overlap between disciplines, which is part of the problem um, and where I've tried to position myself. But I think we're getting there slowly. But yeah, so I'm, you know, we're all evolving every day. And, you know, I listen, I learn so much from your spaces and your viewers or your listeners who contribute to those. I mainly just because, frankly, I'm out of my depth with the intricate market explanations or, or discussion. But yeah, so that's sort of where I am.
Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think like, you know, like you said, like macro and like what's going on geopolitically, granted, like maybe it's not the best to trade or, or you know, invest based on those trends. But I think like there's a lot of it that, that affects the market and, you know, globally as well, too. So, um, you know, on that note, I, I've kind of seen like maybe a recent trend, you know, not a recent trend, but a trend that you know, countries have kind of moved a little bit more to, you know, a global economy, more globalism. And it seems like, you know, what, what's going on right now in Russia and Ukraine and, you know, maybe the potential like energy crisis. I don't know if you want to kind of get into that in Germany and some of these other European countries have kind of, I guess, almost made policyholders seem to second guess that and kind of move towards, you know, local or nationalism where they're kind of, uh, you know, maybe going to start to trend the other direction. Um, so, you know, how do you view, I guess, the overall macro environment in that aspect? Do you see us kind of moving towards that way? Or do you see, um, you know, maybe a, a continued rise of globalism? And this just might be like a, a little, uh, I guess, hitch in the road. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a very broad and I would say multi-layered question. I sort of would split in the way you framed it into three different areas. And the one thing I would say is that a lot of people like to speak to things that they don't have uh, a expertise in to do so. And I prefer to just admit when I don't know something. So on the energy aspect, for example, I have limited knowledge. I don't have a explicit in-depth knowledge of, um, uh, of energy markets. Um, I appreciate it. And I followed obviously what's going on with the pipeline Nord Stream, but I'm more about the sort of the, to the, just the, the country's relations and the very macro. Um, but just to what your, to your point, I mean, just a bit of historical context, you know, there's debate over whether globalization or globalism as it stands is really the first time the term itself came out in the 1980s, but we've seen arguably three or four waves of globalization. An example of one being, uh, in the run up to the first world war. Um, and the arm, um, the boat race, the ships race, the naval race between the British and the Germans. Um, and then there was a second wave between arguably um, 19, 1918 and 1939, um, when you left the gold standard and a shift in the general sort of um, beginning to see a shift in the currencies and the predominant currency shifting from the pound to the to the dollar. So there has been a, a few examples some people even say mercantilism from the Middle Ages um, when we were doing our, you know, exploring uh, the new world, so to speak, was um, was a form of globalism. But the one we're in is definitely the most uh, obvious and the most nuanced. And I think broadly, it has a large amount to do with the multipolarity or or quantity of powers that are in the in the states. So you know, up until 1990, we were in a bipolar world. Now we've been up until around, I would say, 2008, when the cracks really began to show, uh, you know, a, an undisputed primacy of the United States. Um, and then from 2008, that's when the United States dominance over the international financial system, but also just overall um, was beginning to wane. Most country, most people call the United States a great power. It's more than that. It's a hyperpower because it had undisputed, unrivaled power across every single major element of power dynamics. So political, social, economic, cultural. China is an economics great power, superpower, but it doesn't have the sheer uh you know coverage that the united states has done so um from 2008 i mean and again don't take 2008 as like one date and then suddenly everything's changing but it's an inflection point and i think that globalization has seen a significant growth in resistance in the past 10 years deglobalization has developed 
populism is a subset of that or nationalism. These two things happen as a byproduct in some ways because of globalization. People felt that neoliberal economics was not giving them the dividends that they had been promised. Uh, it's what led to the eventual things like Brexit and Trump because people were fed up with the system, fed up with establishment, fed up with the status quo uh, and wanted to see alternatives. So, um, but that being said, we do have a sort of a continued um, reliance on the system. China doesn't support Russia, for example, in Ukraine, because it knows it will benefit far more from keeping the United States and the West, um, which accounts for about 50% of GDP at the moment, um, than one reckless power, which is, you know, struggling to figure out itself in the world, led by a despotic uh, narcissist. So um, I think, um, you know, we're in a phase of toing and froing. Um, and I think the relationship of globalization and how much we want to engage with it will depend on what type of international order we see coming out of these major developments. We have seen a global uh, pandemic, which has had ramifications undoing in the World Bank's you know, estimations, for example, 25 years worth of international development, particularly in Africa. So um, and then to your question about the rise of sort of it was an interesting point I listened to in Bremer who's arguably the the creator of modern political risk in Eurasia Group, which is um, up until now, most analysis has focused on countries, specifically just country profiles, country risks. And what we lack is a proper integrated um, discipline or approach to genuine geopolitical risk. There's a, there's a weird anomaly here in that markets talk about geopolitical risk, Cambridge even has a global risk index of which geopolitics has been the number one issue for the past couple of years. But we don't see the two being actually academically or um, properly analysed together. So what impact does geopolitical risk actually have on the markets? Um, and, and that's what you're beginning to see shift, I think, when we talk about, you know, like your spaces, the macro, the very macro and how it all blends into one another. So sorry for that smorgasbord of... Um, different points but uh i think it sort of comes to where we are now which is a very it is a really really re redefining time i think this this period early 20s 20 yeah and i think like a big part of that is you know probably because of the reset right that we we've seen with with the covid you know pandemic and everything like that as well um you know like you said the global economy is shutting off for uh you know i i don't know some some Undis or some a varied time, you know, depending on where you were and you know how however you view that uh, that whole scenario. But um, you know now we kind of have the the other risk that you talked about with the Russia invading Ukraine and how China isn't really backing them. You know, I, I'd like you to kind of I guess go into uh, I guess a little bit deeper into that because you know obviously I'm not an expert in geopolitics or anything like that but it almost seems like now as somebody you know in the United States that it's it seems like it's like Russia and China and maybe some of these BRICS countries kind of working against the United States and you you know the United States has kind of shown some weakness uh overall in the in the past few years whether it was the way we left Afghanistan um and uh you know obviously uh now um you know, with, with with the global economy and everything like that, um, kind of wearing um, with the U.S. dollar at the forefront. Although the U.S. dollar is kind of ripping compared to the other fiat currencies, and you know, maybe that's a that's a whole other rabbit hole we could get it down into <laughs> eventually. Sure. As well. But um, yeah, so uh, I guess back to my original question was, uh, you know, I, can you kind of go into a little bit deeper on how you know China is viewing? 
um, I guess, this Russia invasion in the Ukraine? Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of points that I also want to mention after your main question. But the Chinese element is extremely nuanced. Um, you know, up until this point, it's what you call the triaxis, basically, the three main powers that most geopolitical international relations analysts talk about in great power politics, which is Russia, China and America. Now, I think India should be increasingly in there and also non-state actors like the EU, for example. Um, and China's relationship with America is, you know, I would put it this way, which is that a lot of people talk about, are we entering a new Cold War? Are we entering some new, you know, power dynamics of China on one side and, um, and America on the other? And they're the leaders of these two fronts. Um, I don't think so mainly because China is inherently different to the Soviet Union. They're much more of an economic force, much more co uh, coherent and cohesive uh, than the Soviet Union ever was. Um, and just an economic powerhouse. I mean, China has got its issues, which we can maybe unpack if you want. But, you know, China doesn't want to replace the United States as the hegemon. It simply wants to level the playing field a little bit more, which is why you see them counterbalancing against the United States with the Russians, particularly. Um, the Russians and the Amer Chinese have a obviously complex history whereby the Chinese were the junior partner when the Soviet Union was still around. And now that position has completely flipped and you were on the verge of potential vassalization of Russia to China, which is China becoming a vassal state to China. I don't think it's ever going to fully become to that extent. It just doesn't seem to me in my mind that the Russians would ever be okay with being sort of literally their sort of, you know, sidekick to the Chinese. But China looks at this situation. Um, I would say that China doesn't like what Russia is doing, but it equally doesn't like the United States legacy. If you talk to a lot of people uh, and they're discontent with the West, it often comes along the similar lines of a degree of arrogancy, hubris, hypocrisy. And I, for one, can appreciate that doesn't necessarily mean I like the countries. As soon as you say that, it's funny how often I'll be labeled a Russian apologist or Chinese apologist. It's like, not really. I've been, I live in the United States and have been studying and am heavily Western. Um, I love democracy and rule of law and everything that the, their freedoms that provide us, but that doesn't mean I don't think that they have a point. Um, a, lot, a friend of mine probably said it best, you know, I'm fed up of America being the global policeman sort of assuming that every country will conform to its norms and values in, and, in, and introduce a democratic societal system. Um, China wants to govern the way it wants to govern. Russia wants to be governing the way it wants to govern. The problem with Russia is when, it, when they start doing things in other countries which are subjugating or oppressing, that is completely out of line and we are doing the right thing by standing up to what Russia is doing in Ukraine. But at the same time, so China and Russia and their main alliance or partnership is one of mutual resentment or frustration or impatience with the West. But that's not a big way to build a long-term friendship, right? The two aren't friends. The United States and the UK or France have an alliance. They have a joint declaration of committed support to one another, whilst China and Russia don't. They have just a mutual set of interests which are predominantly self-motivated. And that's a not a long-term pathway. So if the West was more intelligent or tactful, it would have kept Russia on side instead of alienating it, I think, in the early 2000s, for example. Russia certainly didn't help itself when it invaded Georgia by, by any chance of that. And then, uh, you know, 
annexing Crimea and all this sort of stuff. But I do think the West has a role to play in that. And I think we should also collectively be wary of referring to the West as a monolith. So generally, I think China looks at this uh, war as one of, it's probably overall against it. It understands Russia's perspective, which it's made clear in its statements, but it also makes clear that it understands uh, countries' right for sovereignty and territorial integrity, which Ukraine is 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 uh, having to fight for, uh, and and the war is unjustifiable. But um, you know, China looks at things much longer term than Russian Russians do, or at least this Kremlin regime does. Um, uh, there was a good uh, podcast I listened to, and it it summarized Russia as being a revanchist power, wanting to reform its territorial size and coverage, whilst China is a revisionist. China wants to revise its history and historical associations with certain countries or entities or communities like specifically Taiwan. So, uh, and China's much further forward looking than China, uh, Russia, much longer term. Like, you know, Russia is a reckless toddler throwing its toys out the pram, huffing and puffing, whilst China is there in the background thinking not years or months, but decades ahead from now, which is why the CCP is such a threat, because they really are you know, planning the reincorporation of Taiwan, Hong Kong, all these things with such finite detail. So China is not happy with what Russia is doing, but it um, and I think if the war continues to destabilize the global markets to bring back that element in, uh, China will increasingly distance itself from Russia because at the end of the day, as I say, China has grossly uh, benefited from this this economy than the than getting into bed with Russia. Because what does Russia have to offer before even Ukraine? Not much. Lots of energy. But now it's being completely cut off and China needs to get more on the non-renewables as well. So, uh, and just to your point about the BRICS, the BRICS are a bunch of countries that aren't actually that anything. It was mainly a term developed by Goldman Sachs to define these, what were thought to be the main emerging economies of the 2000s or 21st century. And three of them have amounted to nothing. Brazil, well, not nothing, but Brazil in uh, South, South Africa and Russia have waned or seen a lot of internal issues, whilst China and India really are the two to fo follow uh, and will be the main economic powerhouses along with the US in the in the next uh, you know foreseeable future and the EU if you count that yeah exactly so I mean that's great stuff and so I mean that that covers why China you know doesn't really I guess see the way with with Russia going forward but you know there's also been rumblings of China potentially invading Taiwan and you kind of touched on some of their revisionist uh you know goals of you know, sort of like revising history and everything like that. So, um, you know, what, I guess, benefits would China see uh, from invading Taiwan? And, uh, you know, what are, I guess, are some of the potential reactions that you could, you know, maybe see from, uh, you know, some other countries if China were to kind of go through with it and invade Taiwan? Because it seems like the U.S. is already trying to put some sanctions on them. And, you know, there's been some rumblings of some other things as well. So, um, you know, what, what overall are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, it's, you know, big question, need an entire podcast just for it. But I would say um, uh, there's a lot of um, understandable connections between the two, two major forces uh, dealing with a smaller entity um, and the potential to forcibly reunite it or incorporate it or unify into this sort of imperialistic or whatever kind of entity, right, driven largely through ideology, historical, cultural connection. But they are very different, purely from the pragmatic and military aspect. 
you know, one is a land invasion with what we thought was the second most powerful military in the world, what is actually a laughing stock, versus a navy or the People's Liberation Army or PLA of China, which we've never seen in action, for one, um, which is quite important, and also has a guaranteed support by the United States coming to its defense versus um, versus Ukraine. So the conflict, if there were to be a conflict between China and Taiwan, which I might just um, add as a caveat, uh, there is not 100% guaranteed it will. Uh, a lot of some people think that the Chinese deliberately use Taiwan as a way to foster nationalism. So whenever they have a domestic degree of challenges, um, you know, they, 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 they drum up nationalistic sentiment by saying well don't forget we're going to invade taiwan and the great national rejuvenations as it's known will be uh, re-established and the glory days of the chinese dynasties will come back sort of thing um which you know is an interesting take i still am very conscious that president xi, xi jinping wants to cement himself in chinese glory uh, and history uh, you know along the same lines as mao zedong um, so it could well happen. And that would mean a, a maritime amphibious uh, invasion, which would be, I think, far more um, escalatory than the Ukrainian one, because you have a commitment of a large array of forces down there. The J Japan Japanese, who have the third largest navy in the world, uh, South Korea, which is expanding its uh, uh, maritime capabilities. The Australians, who have now shifted away from being you know, friendly with China or cordial to now just being completely in the US Western tank camp of give us nuclear capable or powered subs. We want to be able to help defend the South China Sea and the uh, Indo-Pacific. Um, the British are down there, the French are down there, and then obviously the Americans. And historically, uh, for your viewer, uh, listeners, there was uh, an interesting um, sort of assessment done in 1944 by the Americans called Operation Causeway, which was basically to see what it would take to undertake some kind of invasion or landing onto Taiwan. And it was like double the size of D-Day, 400,000 men, 4,000 maritime vehicles, vessels, big, we're talking big, big stuff, right? Russia sent in about 190,000 thereabouts. We don't fully know um, into Ukraine. And, you know, this is, and this is going up a mass against the standing army of the Chinese, which is like over a million or something. I, I, you know, I don't fully know the reserve. It's, it's ridiculous. So this conflict would be, massive um it remains to be seen whether or not the chinese would directly engage or what the what the and also what the taiwan taiwanese would do uh and 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 it's all about the thing the biggest way to distinguish it is there's a difference between taking taiwan and keeping it taiwan has a amazing terrain in terms of mountains weather which which would be the topography is basically perfect for guerrilla warfare so there's sort of you know people fighting using the terrain around them to hide and, and under under a bit like the cubans did against the americans or uh the spanish in the civil war sort of thing um it, it, there's so many uh, elements to it that would make it more difficult to, to assess so from a global markets point of view you know i would say that uh, again what what i understood was doing a bit of research about ukraine is again it's there's not an easy way to measure geopolitical risk in a quantitative sense because a lot of geopolitical risk is driven through normative reasons or sometimes it can be pragmatic but or, but how do you still quantify that how do you put that in you did you do you add an index you had a data point like how do you do that so there was an interesting study that i came across and it was talking about how one 
study literally measured the impacts based on distance from the epizone of the conflict. So let's use Ukraine and Russia as a, as a case in point. You measure the ramifications or reverberations of that war or conflict, whatever it is, across the different markets uh, um, subsequently. So look at the SP um, or the NASDAQ or um, FTSE. And depending upon how much they vol- the volatility that occurs within them, uh, you can measure sort of what to what extent they were um, impacted. Um, you know, for, for example, European stock prices tanked far more than those across f- further afield in other parts of the world. Um, so basically, equity markets priced in a, have a, are priced in a negative geopolitical risk premium is what I'm trying to say. So, um, you know. Uh, but the other element to that is also just considering this in the broader picture of global north versus global south. So whilst the European markets tanked in Ukraine quickest, they recovered also the most and shows you the resiliency and the importance of U- European markets still to the central uh, to the global economy. Whilst other parts of the globe, like for the Middle East, for example, they tanked quite quickly as well because they're still quite close to Ukraine, but they've struggled to recover. Um, it's been very imbalanced there because also a lot of the countries there are um, ex- energy-led economies like Saudi Arabia, so they are going to feel that. Now, we've seen the OPEC plus countries sort of band together and it's stabilized since, but um, there's also the food crisis in the Middle East, which is not something the Europeans are having to deal with. Uh, so it, it depends. There's so many elements that are regional, and then that's not even introducing climate risk. Climate risk on, on top of geopolitical risk, I know it sounds like some of your listeners are going to be like, oh, God, he's talking about climate change already. But it is an element because if you already live in a hot area of the world and you see your heat, your your temperatures increasing or just sustainably higher, that's going to exacerbate the geopolitical instabilities that are being created by these human-induced conflicts. So to bring this into the situation of Taiwan, Taiwan is, you know, uh, there's a lot of, there are a few developed economies like South Korea, Japan, uh, Taiwan itself, Singapore, um, but there's also a lot of MEME, um, or, um, yeah, emerging economies, um, which would be, which are very important to global growth and markets, but would tank and not necessarily have the resiliency to bounce back very quickly. I'm thinking sort of Indonesia or uh, Malaysia or, you know, Vietnam, right? These are countries which are important for certain goods productions, uh, like the, the Vietnamese U.S. Um, trade, for example, via the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, they, they've been going up as America has been decoupling from China. The, the other southeastern Asian states, which have very, very, very productive economies, particularly Vietnam, are growing. So if you have a war in the South China Sea, what impact is that going to have on those local economies, which will then have a subsequent impact on the U.S. and its markets? So uh, the South China Sea is somewhere that I'm even more worried about because of just the disjointedness. It's far less integrated. Uh, the EU has a, whether or not you like it, it does have a stabilizing force about it. You have central institutions which can help with that. Uh, whilst in South China, uh, Southern East and Asia, you don't. It's, there's no ECB equivalent. You have ASEAN, but it's a useless organization, frankly. So sorry for that long-winded uh, talk, but I am, you know, very concerned by Taiwan and, and the South China Sea. Yeah, and I mean, it seems like a lot of, uh, you know, issues are going on, you know, just over in Europe, just from effects of, you know, what's already going on in Russia and Ukraine. So, you know, you kind of touched on it slightly, but how would, uh, you know, this 
uh, invasion on Taiwan and that kind of war. And it seems like, you know, although the Russia Ukraine has been kind of a, you know, like you described a, a smaller one, uh, you know, 190,000 troops have entered Ukraine that we know of. Um, so, you know, what would happen, I guess, in Europe? Um, as the proximity and everything else, like kind of the, the reliance on China over there, um, you know, would that kind of continue down the path of hurting Europe dr drastically? Because it seems like there, you know, there's, uh, there's, you know, massive amounts of inflation, you know, um, and uh, a bunch of other issues, obviously the energy crisis and things like that too going on in Europe. Um, so it seems like another war that would be kind of close to close in proximity and close in, you know, just the, the overall global economy would kind of be pretty detrimental to a lot of countries in the EU. Um, you know, do you kind of see it affecting that that way? Um, or do you see, I guess, Europe kind of finding a way to to prevail and this, uh, you know, potential of a China Taiwan conflict wouldn't affect them too much? Um, I will premise my point by saying I don't think that the Chinese-Taiwanese um, conflict is going to happen in any time soon. Um, I mean, it depends, you know, and this is another thing. Geopolitical time horizons can be very different to market time horizons. Um, politics and economics are very different timescales. Um, you know, if we take a, another risk like climate change, for example, um, there is a inherent problem with trying to deal with an overarching issue like climate change when in the West, average election cycles last no more than four to five years. Or in the United States, midterms, which have a potential to significantly change the political landscape, two years. So you were trying to undertake effective policy and substantive like actual physical change to uh, infrastructure, economics, and so on, uh, in a political climate which is completely against it. So that is a problem. Um, and there isn't an easy answer for that. That's why one of the main debates you see these days, and I'll get onto your question, is um, what governance model is best? One that is more authoritative and therefore um, controls the economy, but therefore means greater economic stability, or one where you have greater freedoms, political choice, um, democracy, i.e., or a freer version of democracy, but you get more economic instability, volatility, business cycle, booms, busts, and so on, because of this continuous potential shift in ideology, approach to policies, and so on. That's why, take Britain, for example. There's been so lack of investment in supply-side policies in the past 10 years, even more, because uh, every bunch of party uh, morons are thinking about uh, the next uh, election. Like Liz Trust has tried to achieve supply side growth through deficit, uh, through um, demand side stimuli, cutting taxes to increase long terms. What? Um, anyway, so to your question, I don't think that China and Taiwan are going to happen soon. Um, President Xi is up for his re-election in quotation marks in about a month, less, three weeks. It's not, it's just them ticking boxes to say he's going to, and now he can run the party as long as he likes. Uh, and again, I think he will try to reincorporate Taiwan into the mainland. But I, I, I think it would be absolutely madness and illogical, irrational for the Chinese Communist Party, CCP, to undertake some operation whilst Russia is doing what it's doing in, in uh, Ukraine. The Chinese want to see, and again, not because they're going to take tips from Russia what to not do and to do via military tactics, but simply just for its ramifications from the West, um, what uh, what happens, right? 
if China were to, and this builds on from your previous question as well, had China done a little bit more than simply strongly worded statements with the Russians, like actually provide them economic support, military gear, they would have been sanctioned, secondary sanctions, which the Chinese don't want because they gain 2% of their trade from Russia versus 40% or whatever ridiculous number it is for the collective West, right? So the Chinese aren't going to jeopardize all that by trying to support Russia in a vendetta that they, frankly, excuse me, don't care about. They don't have any interest in Ukraine. I mean, historically, what significance does it have to them? Nothing. So, uh, and I mean that with the biggest amount of respect to my Ukrainian friend, because what is happening is abhorrent. But just purely from a very real politique standpoint, which is how the Chinese approach geopolitics, they're not going to sacrifice or risk all that. So uh, they're going to wait to see how the West responds. And there's two points to this, which is one, the Americans actually told the Chinese what Russia was doing and the likelihood of them actually invading all the way early back in December, January. The Chinese rejected it, thinking it was the Americans trying to do a ploy. Um, and well, here we are. So the Chinese have actually been quite muted on this, I think, because they are questioning, you know, the the ill intention of the West, so to speak, at least in a very broad sense. And secondly, because no one, I think, at least on the Russian side and, and their supporters, not allies, um, expected such a collectively united and strong response from the West. Um, you know, the sanctions may be flawed, the, the West may be suffering, but Russia is going to keel over from this sanctions program and what has what it is experiencing from the West in terms of, you know, losing visas, um, assets being frozen, you know, what's happened to the to the and, and all of that is it shows you the capacity for the West to get shit done when it needs to. Um, and this is what they should have done eight years ago in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. Um, so China, I think, is probably looking at that and thinking, oh, that's more than we anticipated. So I think they're I think they're reviewing and, and reflecting and will maybe make moves, but I don't think it will happen for a long time, at least several years. So I don't think the markets need to worry about it. But what I think would be better is instead of us reacting to stuff, is to preemptively do something about it. You know, alien um, you know, uh try and deter, although deterrence as a grand strategy doesn't always work, but try and engage China in a way that you know, they don't feel the need to invade Taiwan or do something, try and maintain the status quo. But, you know, it's very difficult for us as a Western collector to say to China what it should and shouldn't do with a an island that it thinks is inherently its own and historical associations. So sorry for a long-winded answer, but it's not an easy thing to... <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> stuff is not easy. That's why, you know, I wanted to come and bring you on and, and discuss some of these things too. But, you know, you, you mentioned sanctions and that's been kind of a, I guess, a big topic of discussion when it comes to a lot of these, these, I guess, macro discussions around energy and other things like that too. So, um, you know, when it comes to oil and, and all that, but I'm asking more of like a, I guess, a general uh, you know, a general question is like, how effective can a lot of these sanctions be, right? Because if there's a, a dire need for something, whether it's oil or energy or uh, food or something along these lines, like, you know, if the US places a sanction on, you know, uh, for example, they're, they're in talks of potentially putting a sanction on Iranian oil. So, you know, if they make, uh, if they place that sanction, and somebody else kind of goes against, you know, that said sanction and makes a deal with, Iran, you know, I, I guess are countries more like, I guess, afraid of, you know, may, maybe upsetting the United States and, and going around that? Or, 
you know, it, or is it kind of, uh, I guess, almost like every man for themselves? And these sanctions are just a lot of like hubbub and people just kind of, our politicians just kind of politicking. Yeah, um, no, it's a, you know, full question again. And I, and I want to remind listeners, you know, at this point, I've said some things you may not agree with it. or I'm missing some things out. You know, there's only so much space in my brain. So, uh, you know, <laughs> don't hold everything I say as, as, as gospel. I, you know, we all need to always read and learn more. Um, but to your question, um, you know, I, I think that sanctions are, you know, people ask me, do you think sanctions work or not? And I'm really on the fence because it depends. There's so many, there's so many caveats. There's so many, con- right. You know, it's like, Oh, does it, what, what pisses me off the most? Sorry. It's a rant for a second is people try and make geopolitics black and white. It's can I swear on the show? Um, it's fucking not. They're fucking not. Stop making geopolitics black and white. It's called gray warfare for a reason. People it's called gray zone because everything is so nuanced. Right. So anyway, sorry, rant over. Hi, Rod. <laughs> is, um, you know, uh, sanctions do work, but it depends on what your objective is and in what time frame or what, you know, how you're referring them to, right? So uh, it's a bit like the war, right? Russian apologists will say, oh, no, Ukraine's not winning. Well, no one's winning. It's a war. Everyone's, d- yes, of course, no one's fucking winning. But the point is the Ukrainians are closer to their military objectives than the Russians are. The Russians wanted to take over Ukraine and install a regime change, right? Change a government, get Zelensky out of there. Well, no, they're nowhere near fucking that. They can't even keep the places that they're now claiming up breaking away, i.e. the, the, the oblasts. Um, uh, Ukraine, on the other hand, is much closer to military objectives, which the grand ones being to reclaim the land that is rightfully theirs and kick the Russians out and finally, hopefully, render them incapable of attacking Ukraine again. So when we're talking about sanctions... Um, you need to judge them by which the objectives that they were set. So if the uh, sanctions for Iran are regime change, well, they've categorically failed, yes. Um, But sanctions do work in inducing behavioral change. And that's one of the most important things I want to underline in this section of the discussion, because uh, there are different types of sanctions. Um, Sanctions can be both punitive, but also incentive in the sense of we will roll back certain sanctions if you do X, Y, and Z. I know it sounds inverse, but sort of or perverse, but that's sort of what I mean. Um, so, for example, with the Iranian ones, you know, Iran was, before Russia was sanctioned this year, the most sanctioned country in the world. Um, before the deal was finalized, I thought it was a good idea to see what the JCPOA or the Iranian nuclear deal could achieve. Um, not enough time was given to see what impact it could have before the Trump administration came back and rolled back the, their agreement and imposed maximum pressure, i.e. lots of sanctions, um, which was a bad idea, I think. Uh, we should have given it a few more years. But, you know, now we're in the situation where Iran is protesting. I'm, you know, in, my heart goes out in full solidarity with the Iranian people. We must never conflate a regime with the people. Um, and the sanctions have crippled the Iranian economy. Um, you know, for example, in 2011 and 12, when the SWIFT sanctions were imposed, much lighter versions than the, one we've, than the ones we've seen on Russia, the SWIFTs being the, uh, the predominant that system used to, to, to conduct um, uh, payments, uh, was, um, was a fraction of the Russian one. But it cut the Iranian output of oil, I think it was, by half in less than a year and, uh, and, incentiv- and incentivized them or coerced them or whatever. Um, come to the table to begin the discussions for the JCPOA in the first place. So sanctions do work. 
Um, another example historically is Liberia in 2002, 1996, 2000, early 2000s, there was a massive civil war in Liberia and Western Africa where, you know, tens of thousands of people died and sanctions were used. And this is another point I want to emphasize, which is sanctions are but one tool in a toolbox of economic statecraft. Um, and they were used as part of a multitude of other methods by which to incentivize a over 100,000, uh, I don't know, fighters, mercenaries, whatever you want to call it, to put down their guns and end the conflict in some estimates, you know, five, 10 years early. Um, so the sanctions did work in Liberia. Uh, you could argue that the sanctions in the UN um, against Yugoslavia did work to a, an extent. Did they stop the war entirely? No, of course they didn't. But it was in combination with that, NATO forces, UN peacekeepers, um, and all of this is not perfect. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that intervention is always best. But when you're dealing with a war that is terrible, how, how, how does anyone respond? We saw the impact that doing nothing had in Rwanda in 1994, right? A genocide of over a million people in less than three months. So, you know, it's a difficult one. And I'm not saying I have all the answers. No one has all the answers. But sanctions, if um, done correctly can be impactful and uh, they brought the 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 bosnian wars to a close much sooner because the daytona Ag agreement of 1995 was achieved much sooner um the sanctions against russia are going to i don't even really want to envisage what the russian economy is going to look like uh, after these sanctions uh, you know you're losing an entire generation of russians through well fighting in the war but also fleeing the country and Russia's got a demographic issue as it is. It's declining. It's aging. Um, so, and what does Russia as an economy actually have to offer the world aside from renewable, uh, non-renewables like gas and oil, natural commodities? Not much. They've got an AI, a, a, an impressive advanced tech industry, but that's been crippled. And the military industrial complex is gone because of the sanctions against their tanks and shit. So, so what does Russia have to offer? So the, the sanctions are, are very... Um, they used to be much more broad and crude, you know, embargoes, uh, dumb sanctions. Now they're smart sanctions or targeted sanctions, financial sanctions, um, and they are getting better. So I would say, you know, when we talk about sanctions, we've got to be specific about what we're talking about, who they're applied to, who's imposing them. Um, is there a consistent coordination between all actors relevant to the matter? And so another fact before I pass back to you is, um, one of the issues with, or two facts actually, <laughs> one is that there's poor coordination between certain states with sanctions. So Russia is still able to con uh, to sustain this war because China is buying oil or energy from Russia and then selling it back to other markets. And it's buying that energy from Russia at a discounted price and then racking it up to original or whatever to sell on the overall market. Now, I don't know if we're going to sanction China over that, but that's besides the point. It is basically, you know, Countries aren't, the whole world isn't sanctioning Russia, which means Russia's still going to be able to get away with certain things because there's gaps, there's loopholes. Um, the other thing is um, uh, the sanctions that the West have imposed haven't been consistent. So only certain Russian banks like Severin Bank or uh, Rosneft or Gazprom, some of three of the main ones in Russia, only part some countries have imposed sanctions on them but not others and also other major banks in russia haven't been sanctioned so basically what happens is gazprom just goes to the non-sanctioned bank in russia and says hey can you send this money out or do whatever it is with the uh, with the european markets and get those you know get that financial exchanges happening uh, and because they don't have the sanctions 
they can do it. And then so they they just work around, you know, instead of just going straight across, they go down one and then up, like, you know, through another intermediary. So it's just really dumb. And then the last thing I would say is on this whole idea of an alternative financial model, I had an interview with a, a on the on the on the Global Gambit podcast with a with a fellow from the Council on Foreign Relations uh, about the political economy of Russia and China uh, and their capacity to build an alternative financial system. Now, the currency of China is nowhere near the reserve currency of the United States. You know, the US is still accounts for about 58 percent. It's teetered between 55, 65 percent since what, the late 90s, I think. Um, and, you know, the, the euro accounts for about 20. And then you've got the yang one and the, um, the the pound or whatever. But the Chinese currency, I always forget the name, what it's called, you know, less than 2%. Um, Russia's the ruble. Are you kidding? Um, I wouldn't wipe my ass with it. So you know what I mean? <laughs> so, but the, this whole idea that they would create some alternative financial model. Well, yeah, they could, but not for many years. And the SWIFT system, payment system, you know, uh, there was an interesting article from Bloomberg back in March talking about, you know, the, the level that the, the Chinese alternative is called KIPS or CIPS. And they, at the time of writing, they were doing about 13,000 transactions a day. SWIFT is like three, four million. Like it, it's not, it's not there yet. So, you know, the, the, the alternative is maybe non-fiat currencies. But, you know, not many countries have a lot of faith in that. Only El Salvador has done that. So making it legal tender can do, but there's going to be a lot of risks that come with crypto. I'm not against crypto, don't get me wrong. I'm just like, I think it needs to be uh, regulated a little bit more. But anyway, that's a separate topic. So we can, yeah, I'll pass back to you because I know I'm wittering on too much. <laughs> no, that, that's great. And it's uh, interesting that you brought that up <laughs> to yourself, um, you know, on that, because I, I did kind of mention that, um, earlier. So I'll wrap it up with this one last question um, that might be a little broad. So feel free to to jump around and, and bounce around on that. But I mean, it's more on, uh, you know, I guess like the, the role that the Fed is playing on the global economy, right? It seems like everybody is kind of waiting on the words of Jerome Powell, whether the United States is going to raise rates, cut rates, you know, pull back all this and that. And it seems like, you know, he has, you know, immense amount of power because the U.S. has the global reserve currency right now. And it seems like a lot of people or a lot of countries want to get out from that. You know, you mentioned El Salvador um, and there's a lot of other issues going on and massive amounts of inflation going on globally, not only in the United States, but in Europe. It seems like it's getting even worse. You know, England just announced that they're going to be you know, uh, doing a seemingly endless QE to buy back governmental bonds. Um, so, I mean, you know, on that note, do you think that there's going to be, you know, maybe a potential uh, you know, fall of many of these fiat currencies and, um, you know, on, on moving towards that um, or, uh, you know, maybe the U.S. getting getting away from the U.S. as uh, the global reserve currency or the dollar as the global reserve currency? Um. I'll premise by saying this is probably the area that I will be most um, vague about because it's not something I was, you know, it's difficult to, I'm not a financial analyst. Um, and this is the point I do geopolitics, but there's a lack of, and, and it, I think that's reflected in myself. I need to go more and, and read about the the relationship between the two. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, um, and this is where I sort of would think of my dad again, a little bit and his experience with sort of natural commodities Um you know, his a colleague of his called Frank Joostra, um, who some of your listeners may know, he talks about he's not, I think, in favor of uh, crypto. 
and there's a lot of divergence amongst investors, big scale investors about uh, whether or not crypto is the new form of mainstream currency or whether it's going to usurp currencies like the United States. Um, you know, I, I've, I've not actually gotten into crypto very much. Um, I have a bit, but not much relative to sort of other people who you, well, I'm probably of anyone you've interviewed on this series, I'm by far the least probably, um, but you know, it fascinates me and I watch it with very big interest. Um, you know, Frank and others sort of talk about, or people on that side of the fence sort of talk about, you know, not foregoing traditional things like gold. Uh, and I, and I do, I do, I do resonate with that. Um, I, I do think that you, you know, web three is still very much in its, uh, in its early stages. And I think it would be unwise to put all ones, um, uh, eggs in one basket. Not that you would, I think as a responsible investor, but, um, I think, um, you know, Sure, you want to be ahead of the curve, but also I think it sometimes so that it depends who your audience is or it depends who you're talking to. If it's someone who is a risk taker and, 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 and like those high risk, high reward sort of things, then go for it. But if you have the capital to do that, but if you don't and you're starting out or you're not sure, then I wouldn't encourage people to do that. I know this isn't investment advice. I feel I should say that. Um, but, you know, let's think about it very, very. Uh, in, in, let's let's take what we know at the moment, right, in real time, uh, current events past even week. The events in the UK are self-inflicted. They are a bunch of uneducated, at least in economics, out of the depth politicians who are being driven by short-termist, self-interested gains than they are the long-term welfare of not just the most impoverished people, uh, those relying on their pensions or anything like that, but just the sheer aggregate economy. Um, the What is happening in the United Kingdom which is one of the first countries, if not the first, I think, to separate its central bank from the government in the 90s um, is not, you know, is, is, is no one in their right mind would do that. The only other country I can think where the guy, where the, they're doing, they're going in the face of traditional economic policy is, Erdogan, is Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, and using your listeners, if they're interested, look up Erdonomics. It's hilarious, right? He's doing the opposite of what every quintessential economic theory states. Um, really funny. Uh, that's why you've got inflation in Turkey of what, 100 million something. Um, but anyway, so the UK, I think, is is isolated. I wouldn't read too much into that affecting global commodity uh, or global markets. Um, uh, people will know what, you know, will will be able to keep away from that because if the UK is going to keep doing that to itself, it's mainly just going to affect the UK. UK, just as a side, is, you know, reeling from Brexit and will for a long time, not whether or not you voted for it. That's a separate matter. It's just, you know, the UK is a, is it, is finding itself. The symbolic loss of the Queen, the UK is really, you know, for those of your listeners who are interested in UK markets, you know, the UK is in a tough place. I don't want to live in the UK at the moment. I don't want to be earning money in the pound. I want to be earning it in the dollar. And that leads me to my other point, which is for what it's worth. The United States is still performing very well. It's the best performing of the G7 economies, I think, um, of all the economies that, you know, is suffering from the remnancy of COVID, um, the global, you know, impacts of the Ukraine war, uh, the energy crisis. U.S. is doing well. Why is the dollar so strong? That's what I keep seeing in major news outlets. Why is the dollar performing so well? It remains the global reserve currency for a reason. And whilst the Europeans have to deal with the increased securitization on their borders from the war, which will mean the euro is more precarious, sure, Japan and the 
and their currency, the yen, is is a possibility. Um, maybe the Indians' currency, I don't know, in the future. But like, there's not many currencies out there really that have the same global reach as the US dollar. And isn't, you know, sure, there's a lot of volatility, the polarization in America, your your internal domestic political situation is very, very precarious. But relative to the economic turmoil of parts of Europe, the underdevelopment and non-existent economies of Africa, unfortunately, not to their own fault, um, Southeast Asia being plagued by, uh, you know, regional hegemonic ambitions and instability from China. Um, China's very inward insular thing, meaning that their economy is not there. There's not any alternative that I can really see in terms of do- in terms of currency. So, you know, I-, I think for the time being, and this goes back to my point about being a hyperpower, I do think the United States, yes, it's declining or it's plateauing and China's rising and all these buzzwords that people like to use. Yes, that is happening. But from purely an economic and financial standpoint, America is still very much in, in a solid position. Not prime, but solid. Um, and I think it would be wise to, you know, balance that along with looking at what happens with crypto and just on the crypto fact i'm not against it as i say i'm just wary of it i'm wary of the fact from what i see which is more of a geopolitical-esque you know more traditional maybe maybe i'm just a dinosaur i don't know but i look at the physical world as much as what's happening you know virtually and the fact that we've only had one small central american asian uh, central american state uh, under and I would point out a very left, you know, they're very Latin America has a huge problem with going far left to far right, far left, far right. They're called pink and blue surges or waves in voting habits, isn't great. And the leader, I forget his name, he did it as a way to try and wing favor with some of his flailing electorate, and it hasn't gone that well. Um, he bought loads more of Bitcoin which made, you know, and then I don't know what Bitcoin is at now, but, you know, when it was at a high of whatever it was, and then it kept tanking and tanking at the beginning of the year. And the guy was like, no, no, let's buy more. Let's buy four more Bitcoins. What are you doing? Like, <laughs> so, you know, there's a reason why you haven't seen it catch on. I, I've, you know, I think I might have read a couple of other states, but mainly very underdeveloped states following suit. But like, there's no major developed economy or advanced economy that is thinking, yes, we're going to put focus on crypto. So until I see a, a responsible, maybe not advanced economy, but a responsible one, take, for example, uh, I know, Ghana. Ghana is a very politically stable and quite a gradually growing economy, or Kenya, right, in, in, in Africa. If those two countries begin to look at crypto as an as a alternative, then I, I will begin to pay more of attention. I know it's a very arbitrary example, but like, you know, Ghana relative to Sierra Leone, or uh, Burkina Faso or Mali, which are all suffering from internal political strife. Ghana is gradually growing. They're growing at a rate of, I think, 2 3% a year, 4%, which for an African country is pretty good. So, you know, until I see countries which are not necessarily America or something like that, um, then I will begin to feel like, yeah, more comfortable with getting in with it. And then the last thing I'll end on is the UN. The UN needs to be considered in all of this. Multilaterals need to be considered in all of this. The World Bank needs to be considered in all of this. And, and what role do they play? Non-state actors play in influencing markets, currencies, and so on. But anyway, um, maybe we can talk about that in another conversation in the future. So thank you very much. Yeah, of course. So thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and what all you got going on? Sure. Um, well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um you know, I have my own podcast listeners. Um, 
the Global Gambit, uh, hosted by Piotr Kurz. You know, going into podcast mode. Um, it's um, it's available on Apple, Spotify. Um, Gambit is spelled G-A-M-B-I-T. And the reason I called it Global Gambit is because Gambit means um, a you know risky move to out with your opponent. And global gambit means, well, you know, global. So, and the icon, if you look it up, type it incorrectly, is a, is a globe with a chessboard superimposed on top of it. Because I was like, well, it's a global chessboard. You know, people are playing stratagem with one another. So uh, there's that. Um, and, you know, the thing I would say to all, my, uh, to all your listeners is I record mine on uh, sometimes on Twitter and on Clubhouse um, because I like the social dynamics. I like getting people to join in the conversation, ask questions and make it what I've called a social podcast. So, you know, 45 minutes of a traditional Q&A like this and then 10 minutes of audience participation. So if they ever want to join in in participation, then follow me on Twitter at P Curzin, P-K-U-R-Z-I-N. Um, and yeah, love to, you know, love to stay in touch uh, with anyone who has any questions or anything. And I'm always, my email is always open. It's theglobalgambit at gmail.com. But thank okay. you very much for your time. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for coming on. And yeah, we'll, we'll have to get you come back on eventually. And then, uh, yeah, uh, I'll pr- probably jump into one of these uh, recorded podcasts on your spaces and everything like that. That seems like a cool concept. So I'm excited to join that and uh, get it going. So thank you so much for your time and look forward to connecting with you further. Cheers, Ben. Thanks a lot, everyone.